0: Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is John Sherrill. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church with uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Sam, and it's great to be worshiping with you. Uh, We're continuing a series in the Gospel of John uh, called uh, That You May Believe, and we'll we'll pray in just a moment and read the passage for the day, but I just kind of wanted to frame that for us a little bit. Um, Christmas reminds us, of course, that uh, the claims of our faith are historical in nature, not just kind of philosophical or, or religious or something. And um, it, it, it also tells us that our faith is based on events, not just religious ideas. And that, that's the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. And it's something that we're holding in mind as we work our way through this whole series in, in John's Gospel. The, the Apostle John told us why he wrote this gospel. I know I've said this multiple times. We'll say it every week through this series. It's at the end of chapter 20 in his gospel. He wrote this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote that we might respond to the claims of Jesus. He wrote so that we might have faith and and have life in in Jesus' name. And again, we're holding this in mind as we work through this series because the the, the response is to place our trust, our faith in Christ, in, in Jesus, not in organized religion, right? Certainly not in any church or any pastor you happen to like. We believe the Bible, we love the Bible, we do not place our trust in the Bible. We place our trust in a person, in, in Jesus. That's the response Jesus is looking for from us. Now today we're gonna to read the story of uh, Jesus changing water to wine at a wedding in Cana and then Jesus getting kind of angry and clearing out the temple of people who were selling stuff and, and changing money. So we'll hold in mind that idea of responding to Jesus in faith. Let's pray and then we'll hear the scripture. God, as we open the Bible and read, please pour out your spirit upon us that we might hear what you're saying, that we might know what to do about it, so that we might more faithfully and more accurately follow you. Uh, Make it so, Lord, by your spirit, we pray
1: in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord from John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now what jesus did here in cana of galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him after this he went down to capernaum where the, where his mother and brothers and his disciples with his mother brothers and disciples there they stayed for a few days when it was almost time for the jewish passover jesus went up to jerusalem His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Sam. Uh, just a, a quick thing about John's gospel before we dive in this morning. Um, as with most biblical texts, right, understanding the cultural background is important. It's particularly important for John, uh, understanding John's gospel. Of course, at one level, you can just read the Bible and, and the Holy Spirit makes it clear. And we, this is what we believe God does. At another level, there's a lot going on culturally that's important. And what John is doing, at least in the next three chapters here, and, and periodically throughout the gospel, is he's, he has a kind of pattern. He's taking a, a Jewish cultural uh, religious institution, and he's showing how Jesus kind of came to replace that, and then fulfill it with an overabundance of stuff. So there's like this replace and fulfill thing uh, going on in the text. And we'll see that in, in both of these Uh, both of these stories but the the larger purpose of these stories there are many of them in all the gospels right in John's gospel there are many stories many characters but the point the purpose of the stories is to reveal who Jesus is the synoptic gospels often opt for the word miracle Uh, John uses the word sign people put up signs to communicate a message Right? John's understanding is that when Jesus does these things, a message is being communicated to us about who, who Jesus is. So just hold that in mind as we, as we kind of dive into this. And let's dive in. Look at the first three verses of the text we read. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, weddings in, in Palestinian culture back then were a, a huge deal. They involved not just the family, but the whole village. They were elaborately planned, often uh, uh, over months, and they would sometimes last an entire week. So it was, it, was a, it was a big deal. And for people in Jesus' day, this wedding banquet, this wedding feast, was their primary image of celebration. When they thought about having fun, when they thought about rejoicing, when they thought about a party, they thought about a wedding banquet. And if you're more familiar with the Bible, you, you can probably think of examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this imagery of a wedding banquet is throughout the scripture. So much so that when Jewish people thought about heaven or the arrival of the Messiah, they thought about a wedding banquet with all of its joy and togetherness and, and unity in, in the whole community, right? So knowing, knowing that a party like this involved the whole village and could last an entire week, helps us understand how they might just run out of wine. (laughs) And Jesus' mother identified the problem. They have no more wine. Now, culturally for us, we're probably thinking, you know, dinner party, where you uncork the last bottle and you pour, you give people a short pour because you're out and like, eh, no big deal, right? In that culture, this was a huge deal. This was bad news, really bad news. Remember, it's an Eastern culture, honor, shame, public honor, public shame kind of thing is a big deal. Gift giving was a huge thing at weddings. There were actually legal ramifications if you didn't follow the gift giving protocol because if you didn't, you might bring public shame on the newlywed couple at the moment of their greatest joy. So you could get in trouble like if you didn't follow the protocol. So for the host of this banquet, most likely the groom's father and, and men of that family, running out of wine was not just an embarrassing um, mistake, it was a dishonoring crisis that could bring dishonor on, on this couple that they love for whom they were hosting this thing. And it, w- it would be a shame that would never be forgotten. And I'm not not gonna go deep on the interaction between Jesus and and Mary, but just, just think about it, right? Mary identifies the problem. They have no more wine. So you know the culture, you know how pregnant with meaning that statement was. They have no more wine. This couple is going to experience shame. It will never be forgotten in the village. Jesus, you have to do something. And Jesus says, woman, which was, that, that wasn't as crass as it sounds in English. <laughs> it was a term of endearment. He was just distancing himself. It, was like, it would be like saying, ma'am, to his mom. It would be a little weird, but he would, he, it was respectful. He said, look, my, my time hasn't come yet. And you do kind of imagine your way into the scene. Did, did Mary shoot him one of those looks, one of those mom looks that said, hey, your dad might be the living God of the universe, but I'm your mom. And you're going to help, you're going to use your connection with him, you're going to help these people, you're going to fix this problem. Right. And you can just see Jesus like, Mom? And then Mary turns from him and looks at the servants and says, "Uh, just do whatever he says. (laughs) And uh, there's so much to unpack in this story. Uh, We can unpack the jars. He pointed to some jars, not just any jars. They were the jars used for ritual purification, where they washed well, that has incredible meaning. This is a new kind of purification that's coming, right? But he, f- he fills, uh, he tells him to fill, fill his jars with water, of course. This, this wasn't just a small kind of jar either. And it's not, uh, it wasn't pottery, it was carved out of stone because that was the only kind of jar that would remain pure for this kind of ritual cleansing in, in Jewish eyes. And they were huge. Each one of them held about 20 gallons. So we're looking at like, 120 gallons. If you think 50-barrel drum, right? Uh, Two of those and a half again. And of course, Jesus changes it into wine, uh, provided wine for them, rescued them from their shame in so doing. Now remember, John wrote this gospel to reveal who Jesus is so that we might respond to him. And the first thing revealed about Jesus in this story is that Jesus provides a new kind of rescue. Uh, Jesus rescues us from shame and replaces that shame with an abundance of his goodness. In in the Old Testament, the arrival of the Messiah uh, was thought to be accompanied by an abundance of wine because wine just represented kind of God's goodness, the fruit of the earth, uh, overflowing times of, of celebration. And Jesus didn't give, just give him enough wine to get by. I mean, this is 120 gallons. And then it's the good stuff, too, right? It's, it's like 120 gallons of Chateau Lafitte, <laughs> 20 AD, the best stuff around. Uh, and the point is that Jesus came to provide a new kind of rescue. It's not just enough. It's way, way, way more than enough, right? The gospel of Jesus is is not simply about having our sin forgiven and our negative account, spiritual account, brought back to zero. God does forgive us of our past wrongs, but he doesn't stop there. See, the gospel of Jesus is about the amazing grace of God that that God deposits into our account the perfect righteousness of Christ in place of all of our sin and alienation from God. So by God's grace and through our faith in Jesus, our spiritual account with God went from a horrible negative balance we could never cover to an incredible positive balance we could never have earned. And this would be the spiritual equivalent of being the solo winner of the Powerball jackpot times a gazillion. Right, the moment when that person realizes they have the right number and they say, wait, I got what? I mean, this is, this is how important this is. It seems like many people think of faith in Jesus uh, as being about Jesus forgiving us for our past wrongs. But then you enter this kind of religious life where you have to kind of keep yourself clean in in the present and you're kind of on your own. And and certainly, pursuing holiness is an important thing in the Bible. That's a big part of following Jesus. He came not just to rescue us from the penalty of sin, but from uh, the power of sin in our life now. Because being rescued from the power of sin in our life now is a better way to live. And he wants us to have that kind of life. So that's really important. But our baseline relationship is not dependent upon that. It's dependent on on what Jesus has done for us and God's grace and our faith in Jesus. And the book of Romans is filled with this uh, this legal kind of imagery. And the implication is that what God has done for us in Christ is that God has declared us to be perfect just like Jesus is perfect. By God's grace and through our faith, God has made a legal declaration you are adopted. The adoption certificate signed by Jesus, like you're in the family. Nothing can ever change that. And we're working it out, we're all working it out, but we're not trying to work out our family connectedness anymore. We have a father who loves us, not just kind of, like for real, not just an idea. And and when that truth gets into our hearts, when the reality of that, not just the idea of that, but when the reality of that gets into our hearts, that's all grace too, by the way, but when that gets into our hearts, it's like being born again into a whole new life. That's the imagery that the Bible uses. And it's the Bible's word, not a word of our culture or a politically based kind of thing, that that phrase born again. It means realizing the grace of God in Christ and and stepping into a whole new experience. Pastor Brian will talk a lot more about this next week because that's in John chapter three, uh, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, where Jesus talks about this. Martin Luther experienced this. Uh, he He was stuck in thinking that he had to do stuff to make himself presentable to God and kind of make up for his past wrongdoing. And then his his superior told him to teach a class on on kind of Paul's writings, Romans and Galatians. So he read Romans and Galatians closely, tightly, and was blown away by what he found. He understood that, that God in Christ not only forgives us of our sin, but gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ. I mean, Jesus said it very clearly. The Son of Man came, to seek and to save the lost, right? Jesus rescues us from our shame and guilt and gives us an abundance of goodness in in place of that shame and guilt. And it's important to clarify that when we as Christians talk about shame and guilt, we're not simply talking about the psychological experience of shame and guilt. Unlike self-help pop psychology, we understand shame and guilt to be the real outcome of our real disobedience of God, not just a negative psychological experience we can correct by changing our self-talk. Right, said Mark Twain, human beings are the only creatures who blush or who need to. Why? Because we don't just feel guilty. We are guilty. It's not just a feeling or an experience. It is a reality. We are guilty of violating our relationship with God, and we should be ashamed of that because it's wrong. I mean, it's disrespectful and dishonoring to God, and that is wrong. So Jesus doesn't just save us from thinking poorly of ourselves. Jesus saves us from our sin, which has alienated us from God and set us on a path of living apart from God. And the whole story of the Bible is that God doesn't want to live apart from us. From the very first inklings of the gospel way back in Genesis 3 all the way up to the last chapter of Revelation it all speaks of God's heart saying I do not want to live apart from you. I want you back. All of you. I want you back. God does not want to live apart from us and that's why he came to us in Jesus. It's his invitation and the invitation is open this day to come home to God where we can live a whole new life, the life we were created to live. Not perfect now, right? We're all messed up and we're all living examples, not perfect examples. But at, at the end of the day, following Jesus is a better way to live than not following Jesus, as imperfectly as any of us do it. I mean, pursuing holiness is hard, but it leads to a much easier life because you don't have to hide stuff. You don't have to cover up. You know, when you mess up, you can say, I messed up, God, please forgive me. If you break a relationship with somebody else, I messed up, would you please forgive me? It's just a better way to live. So in the wedding story, we see that Jesus came full of grace. He came full of grace. And in the story of him clearing the temple, we see that he also came full of truth. Look at these verses again. In the temple courts, he, Jesus, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, the important piece of this is where this story happened. In in the temple courts. In Jesus' day, the temple had several different courts or gathering places dedicated to different groups as their areas of worship. And I think we have a picture of the temple. Thank you, ESV Study Bible. This is from the ESV Study Bible. It might be a little small for you, but you can see that whole elevated area is the temple mount. You can see the big building in the center is the actual temple building. And then if you, you know, around the actual perimeter is that uh, uh, kind of colonnade, but within that, if you can look at the little fences, the little little walls there, the, the furthest one out separates the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the big flat area on top there, the temple mount. So, and, and you can, if you look real close, I wish I had a little pointer. You can see little walk, walkways that get you through that wall. So you can, you can think, uh, think about the Psalms. Uh, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What that, when you entered hit through the gates, that was walking through those little pathways into the temple courts. You're entering his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. So people were coming uh, to worship. And there were, there were like concentric circles of courts, right? The, the temple was at the, at the center and that was understood where God actually dwelled, the presence of God was. God lived there. And then the court of the priests and then the court of the Israelites for the, for the men only at that point. And then the court of the women for the female Israelites. And then that furthest court out was the court of the Gentiles. That, that was the place where non-Jewish people could come and, and worship. Uh, remember Jesus' invitation, come and you will see from a couple weeks ago? This, this was where people all over the world could come and see about the claims of God. That, that was a space dedicated to them and, and for them to worship God. And the selling, all the selling of animals and stuff, the exchanging of money, was going on in the court of the Gentiles in the big space surrounding the more central courts. Jesus saw that and he became so angry. So we have to ask, why the angry. What was going on there? I mean, you got the story of Jesus kicking stuff over, and this doesn't isn't the normal Jesus we think of, right? He was he was peeved. Uh, th- this account occurs in all four gospels, and in, in the other three gospels, it give, they give an account of why Jesus got angry. Basically, Jesus says, "Don't sell stuff here because my house will be a house of prayer for all nations." In saying that, he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. Look at this passage. Let no foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. For this is what the Lord says. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, quote, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. The whole point of this verse is that God is going to expand the boundaries of salvation. Right? I will gather still others. Now, this is the verse that Jesus quoted when he was explaining why he was so angry. It's the verse that said God is going to expand the boundaries. He's going to call all people back to himself, meaning non-Jewish people, right? And non-Jewish people were also called Gentiles. And, and This was the place where the whole world could come to explore faith in God, faith in Jesus, because that faith is for the whole world, not just for our little church or our community. God's vision is for a restoration of all people everywhere, of the whole creation, everything God has made. So when Jesus walked into that temple and saw the court of the Gentiles had been turned into a market, he was irate because his people were missing the whole point. And he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Because the whole point in having this place was so that people can come and get to know me, can come back into a relationship with me, that they might seek me and find me and have life in my name. The simple fact that there was a court of the Gentiles at all reveals God's heart for people, God's desire for all people everywhere. To come home to him. And when that special sacred place had been muddied with all this marketplace stuff, it's not that the marketplace stuff is good, it's great, just not there. Just not there. Because you're missing the whole point. See, God's primary purpose in the world is this great process of renewal. And it involves you, it involves me, it really does. This is our new calling in Christ. See, the marketplace buzz was hindering, not helping, the advancement of that purpose. It was all focused on serving the needs of the already convinced. They had become an inwardly focused church, concerned more about themselves than the world, filled with people whom God loves dearly. See, Jesus was not angry. Because people were selling things, he was angry at where they were selling things and what that revealed about their hearts and what really mattered to them. He was angry because the Jews, his people, had completely forgotten their fundamental mission in the world to partner with God in blessing the world and welcoming the world back to him. Well, truth, right? Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth. The temple story reveals that Jesus is full of truth. Wedding and temple, grace and truth. The Apostle John said it very clearly in in the first chapter. The word meaning Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We've read his signs. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. There was a sermon preached back in the 60s uh, by an Anglican priest I believe and and the the summary of that sermon included three points, Jesus will never let you down, he'll never let you go and he'll never let you off We, we, we tend in our baptisms here to say Jesus will never let you down and he'll never let you go but a real important part of that old sermon was that Jesus will never let you off he loves you too much to allow you to remain as you are. That's the truth part. You know the way we experience this, this, this fullness of grace and truth in, in street clothes is experienced today as invitation and challenge coming to us from sisters and brothers in Christ. Right? Grace and truth, we're invited into a new relationship with God and and the the abundant new wine of, of that relationship. And we're challenged to follow Jesus, not just think well of him now, to follow him, to obey him, and to push all in. And we should help each other in that because that's good for us. Again, the purpose of these stories the stories in the Gospel of John are to reveal who Jesus is so that we might respond to him in faith. And our response, no matter if we've walked with Jesus for, for years and years and years or if we're just checking him out for the first time and kind of responding the first time, our response is always, it always starts from the same kind of spirit, same starting point. And that's this place of humble asking, this place of turning from, our stuff back back to God and simply saying God I think you're real I need your help please forgive me and help me trust Jesus pour out your spirit on me and help me see so I invite you to that today maybe you're in a place where you need grace I mean, think of what that wedding story reveals about Jesus and the abundance he wants to pour into your life. Maybe you're in a place where you need some truth. You need Jesus to come and stand before you and very directly tell you the truth. Remember, he's not doing that to shame anybody. He's doing that to invite us to a fullness of life that we, in the end, see is a much better way to live. So wherever we are, let's receive that revelation and respond. Right? Revelation and response. So as we sing together in in a moment, I invite you to consider what you've maybe heard the Lord saying today and how it is that you need to respond to that. The team's coming up. Let's let's pray together, shall we? Lord, you are good, and you are true. Thank you for showing us the depth of your love, in that you came to us in person that first Christmas long ago. Thank you for giving us signs that reveal who you are and what it is that you came to do. And thank you for accomplishing it finally and fully on the cross and through the resurrection and ascension. Uh, God, sweep away our fog by your spirit. Enable us to receive what you're saying. And Father, by your spirit, empower our response to you, please. Give us the grace to respond and the courage to follow and help us where we are now. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.